lifetimes of listening. I learned to play sitting on my pack on the side of the road. I came from a high school that had an amazing music program, and I was in choir, orchestra, and marching band. So when I was growing up, the first music that I was really like a big fan of was hip-hop, especially from like the 90s. Whenever I play music, I like to be able to sing along with it. I also am a performing artist, guitar player and singer. I've performed all over the country many times. I've toured many times. Lifetimes of Listening. This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast, an outgrowth of the Arizona Musical Memory Archive. My name is Brian Moon. I'm at the University of Arizona at the Fred Fox School of Music, where I'm an Associate Professor of Practice in Musicology and the General Education Coordinator. And I'm Dan Cruz. I'm an alum of the Fred Fox School of Music here at the U of A. I do uh, research, uh, lecturing, and documentary work all about music. I'm also a part-time radio announcer for the U of A's NPR-affiliated radio station. Both Brian and I are here in Tucson, Arizona, as we said, connected with the U of A and the Fred Fox School of Music. So in brief, what is this podcast about? Well, let's give you a sample. It was a big party thrown for, it was a summer league basketball league. So it was like thousands of people. And then they put on When Doves Cry. And the place went crazy, just thousands of people all over the stands. It wasn't just like what it made me feel like. I saw thousands of people who felt the same exact way. So that's just a brief clip of an interview that we're going to hear more of later on as we look at musical memories today. Our aim in this entire project, Lifetimes of Listening, is to document, record, archive, and study the musical memories that are such an important part of people's lives. Now, Brian and I are doing this by interviewing people from all walks of life, and they tell us about important musical memories that they have, things that may be tied to a place, a period in their lives, their family, an important person, or some other musical or music-centered experience, or even a random event that has somehow gotten connected in their mind or heart with music. That's what it is. It's Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Archive and Podcast. a musical memory to share that is of a communal nature, and it was a very unique experience for me, Brian. I think I'd mentioned it to you in the past. My two kids, who were now in their 40s, when they were in college, around college age, about 20, 22 years ago, became big fans of the band Fish, which is kind of, for those of our generation, uh, it's kind of the Grateful Dead of, of the latter 20th century. My kids followed Fish all over the country, and while they were doing that, they notified us one point that my wife and I, who were living here in Tucson, should come up and see a fish concert that was taking place in Phoenix that they were going to be at as they're traveling around the country. So I had no clue what to expect from a fish concert. I'm a big music lover, have been to dozens if not hundreds of concerts in my life. My wife and I went to the fish show in Phoenix, Arizona, and experienced something that I've never experienced before, a sense of community, a sense of uh, kind of a group dynamic that built and and grew and ebbed and flowed with the music. 20,000 or so people out of doors in a beautiful venue on a beautiful evening with a feeling of connection to one another and the music that made me realize now why my kids were following fish all over the country. A, a real communal musical experience for me. How about you? Do you have one to share? 
So I, I have a lot of um, performing experience and part of, I believe, why I am uh, the musician that I am today is because of the way that I fell in love with making music with others. I distinctly remember being a part of a choir on tour in France in college and singing a baritone line with um, basses singing below me and a whole stack of choir singing above me and feeling just in the middle of not only the choir and with all of those people in this big experience, but also just in the middle of this harmony in these big open cathedral and these big spaces. It was it was quite something else. It's part of why I became a choir director and, and part of why I wanted to be a musician. Great experiences these are. It's communal musical experiences, and it's uh, what our episode is all about this time, right? Yes, and today we have a guest, Susan Crane, professor of history here at the University of Arizona and a specialist in this area. We talked with her recently at the University of Arizona's Fred Fox School of Music. So I'm really excited today. We have Susan Crane, a professor of history here at the University of Arizona. And we've asked her here because she's an expert in how an individual's memory relates to larger collective and communal experiences and has done a lot of research on that. But Dan and I became aware of you through your humanity seminars on memories and and the ways and the history of memories. But before we get into any of that, I also want to put a plug for your book that was just published in January, which I ordered on Amazon today. Um, And uh, the best title for a history book ever, Nothing Happened, A History. I look forward to reading it. So I don't want to take us off topic, but uh, but please tell us about yourself, Susan. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm always happy to talk about nothing because <laughs> then I don't have to say anything. Um, but actually, uh, I've been doing nothing for the past eight years. And so I'm very pleased to have the book out to finally show that I, I really did do nothing. Um, but the book looks at how nothing happened in the past because I'm interested in how people choose to remember what they think is important to remember about the past. So I am actually a historian of historical consciousness um, who happens to have a background in German language, German history, and modern European studies. So that's what I work on. Um, But I got interested in um, how people remembered or what they were remembering when they said nothing happened, because they're always remembering something, even if it was boring or insignificant, or they didn't think anyone was going to remember it. Um, Because I've always been interested in how and when people choose to remember the past. So my first book was about history museums in Germany. Why did people create the first museum of national history in Germany? What did they want to remember there? So there's actually a link between memory and nothing. And I've been teaching a course for uh, many years uh, that I've also offered through the Humanities Seminar and to undergraduates, and it's called Histories of Memories. And in that class, we talk about what is collective memory, and we talk about how um, there have been sociologists, psychologists, and philosophers in the 20th century who were particularly interested in how you have individual memory, and it is yours, but it ends up being dependent upon other people, collectives. 
and it ends up being dependent on memory triggers, not necessarily intact memories in your mind, but you might hear something. And this is where I think music is going to be a logical um, connection. You might hear something, you might see something that triggers a memory. But that memory itself, you wouldn't even be able to recover unless you had other connections in your mind back to where you first heard it or who you were with when you first heard it. And a lot of times it turns out, if you really dig into it, those memories stem from families. So when you're growing up, when you're a little kid, there's a lot of memory impact. Memories are shaped within families and shared within generations and generations within families. So parents and children not as much as you'd think. Turns out a lot between grandparents and children ends up linking people further back into the past than they would have any lived experience or lived memory of. So um, I'm always intrigued by um, how people remember what they want to remember, what they don't want to remember, and it comes back anyway, but also the way that it's plural. Um, Collective memory is never singular. You can't talk about the American memory of anything. There's multiple collectives within any large entity like a nation, but also within a family. So you personally belong to a whole bunch of different collectives, some of which are defined through family, through generations, others of which might be who else heard the music you heard or who else was at the performance you were at. And those are multiple collectives that you share because you were there or because you love that music. So much of what you're talking about, Susan, is resonating with me because the musical memories that we're going to share with you today, some recordings that Brian and I have done, interviews we've done, are particularly powerful because they relate to music. And in this case, because these three relate also to the sense that uh, each of our interview subjects relates to how it was a shared experience. So um, is there is there anything in particular that you find about people remembering music that seems relevant. Why is it that me- that people remember music, for example, so well? Or why does a musical event in someone's early life, say their teenage years, resonate so strongly? Yeah, there have actually been some scholars who've looked at um, precisely which, uh, at what age are you at the point where you're most influenced by the music that you're listening to? And it turns out it's, I'm not remembering the exact ages, but I want to say it's about the age of 10 to about the age of 25. So you said your teenage years, whatever music you loved at that age, you're going to love for life. You might acquire some other ones later, but that is what you're really going to love. It's a period in in life when people are bonding with their peer group, right? They're going through maturing changes, adolescence, young adulthood. But it could also be where you have to blame your parents because whatever they were playing and listening to, like in an earlier phase, pre-earbuds for everybody, you might have been stuck hearing the music in the car or in the house that you end up getting stuck with for life and you've got the earworms for life, but wasn't your favorite? Yeah, you're going to be stuck with it for life. So many of the musical memories in the archive, that uh, the interviews that we've done of, of students um, often begin with, well, I, I remember this time listening to music with, my parent in the car you know there's there's um, a theme of those parent in the car memories. yeah not surprised so it could be what you fall in love with but it could also be what shapes what you think music is you know to begin with um, my mom always had it's now called K Mozart but I forget what it was in Los Angeles there was this all classical music station she loved listening to opera and don't judge me. I can't stand opera, but she loved it. So I always associate opera with my mom, who I loved dearly, right? So I got exposed to it. I heard it a lot. I didn't fall in love with it. 
I still recognize those those bits of music, right, when I hear them later, and I think of my mom. So shall we share with Susan the, the three memories that we brought today? Is yeah. this a good time to yeah, do that? Yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's listen to these, these memories. Uh, so the, the first memory that we have is from Professor Natari Galt. Of the, uh, he's a lecturer in the Africana Studies uh, pr- program. I made his acquaintance when he came to um, work with the doctoral choral con- uh, students here um, about how best to present black folk music in concert. Um, Antari is a is a, a poet and a novelist and a playwright, um, and has has a, a very compelling story about the emergence of a particular uh, single from a Prince album, and uh, and I remember. I remember this this single dropping uh, with with this. So let's let's take a listen to his story. I was going into my senior year of high school. It was actually I think it was like about June seventeenth, nineteen eighty four, and Prince was releasing the Purple Rain album, and he had just released When Doves Cry. It was a big party thrown for. It was a summer league basketball league, so it was like thousands of people, you know, in this park, Martin Luther King Park, on the east side of Buffalo. They were playing a lot of songs. People were dancing. And then they put on When Doves Cry. And the place went crazy. Just thousands of people all over the stands dancing. So then they played the song about a half hour straight. Back to back, no breaks. And then finally, the DJ, so he put on something by Run DMC. And everyone started screaming, booing, and telling them to put that Prince song back on. They played that song for the next hour and a half. I left the party and they were still playing the song. I don't know how long they played the song, but, but straight. I just never heard the ending of the song because they just kept on looping it for the next hour and a half. So two hours of Prince. It could have gone longer than that, but I finally had to go home. And so I left the party the entire time. <laughs> I never saw it break. I don't think it was the lyrics at that moment because most of us were hearing the song for the first, very first time. Everybody in that park and people were greeting each other and and talking to each other and none of us had ever seen anything like that before. It wasn't just like what it made me feel like. I saw thousands of people who felt the same exact way. Your thoughts, Susan, in response to uh, Natari's memory? I'm smiling so big because I also remember when that song came out and... Um, what strikes me uh, about his memory is the way in which a collective is born in an instant. And I'm really surprised that the DJ is playing the song over and over and over again and no one's protesting. That's amazing. They're, they're protesting at any change. It's got to be that song. So in an instant, there's a collective that's born. And I'm sure that all the people that were there are going to remember it. Or will they? You know, it seems to have made such a huge impression on him. And it's a moment in which he's in a group and the group is excited and there's this energy. And yet I wonder, you could ask somebody else who was there that night and they might go, oh, man, I can't stand Prince. You know, <laughs> I wonder if later uh, there yeah. could be things that happen later that well, change the way that they felt about it. Let's assume they had good people. taste and, and are still fans of Prince. But and yeah. then there's other people for whom the resonance <sighs> is in the sound right there and it's making them move. And so wouldn't you think there'd also be body memory? Of that, so every yeah. time they spend later when yeah. they hear the song, they I when him. I hear that song, uh-huh. I start moving. Right. One of the things that impressed me <clears throat> is when he when he commented that the song had just come out, so nobody knew the lyrics, so they're not responding. And I'm the same sort of person. Yeah. I will hear a pure, pure piece of music, 
and I respond to the sound of the music, and it, it may be 5, 10, 20, 30 years later that I actually listen to the lyrics. That seemed to be part of the shared experience here, that they were responding to sound, to chords, to chordal patterns, to rhythm, to the, to the, so to the sonic quality of the sound, setting aside the whole issue of the lyrics, which would have been a completely different experience had it been about the lyrics. Is, is what's it, it, it is a, it's, a, it's a relatively dark, uh, a song about a relatively dark, uh, you know, domestic violence and, and uh, troubled marriage and a whole bunch of other, I mean, it's not, it's not a party song to replay <laughs> on a loop for a, a bunch of teenage basketball players. But it's, the sound but, of it must be. But the, yeah, I, I the remember distinctly. So, so one of the things that was striking about Prince, he was one of the first um, black rock R&B soul-ish artist to really emerge as a superstar about the same time as Michael Jackson, but, but, but had such a, he had such a distinct sound. And I remember hearing him on the radio and just being immediately where he was like, it was like nothing else. Nothing sounded like him at that moment. Yeah. Um, to my ear, now that's partly because I wasn't listening to all of the stuff that was that the DJs were listening to in the 70s of, of some of the best soul and funk artists until yeah. much later in my life, you know. But he, he just, you know, he emerged for the writ large mainstream so that when I heard him in rural southern Mississippi uh, at the same time, I... You know, it just sounded incredibly yeah. distinct. But it, I, so when when uh, I, d- I did the interview with Natari and heard him tell the story, I was amazed because I knew exactly what he was talking about because I'd had that same connection to the song. And mm-hmm. I was not, you know, I was not in a, uh, a, a predominantly black uh, basketball league when I heard it I you know I was just hearing yeah. it on the radio in, um, so, in, so a, in a very like different that, way a song like that seems to me to have a very personal singular resonance for anybody who hears it but in this particular occasion because of the celebratory nature of the gathering the song did something to the group Susan any, any other thoughts on that I'm also thing? thinking about even if it wasn't just about this song and it's hard for me to to move away from the song because I have memories I associate with that one but if you think about it more about was there one concert you went to where everything changed was there one performance you went to that seemed to mark a moment uh, collective memories are often formed around a sense of it was like this before and then it changed. Mm-hmm. So if there was a, a transitional moment or some kind of pivot where you think, um, I kind of realized something in that moment that <laughs> things were going to be different. And sometimes I think people have articulated that in response to a new song or a new kind of music or they hear it for the first time and they think, wow, I've never heard anything quite like yeah, that. Sure. Then you do have a sense of change. And I think that could also be what he's thinking, what he's picking up on when in his memory of that event. Yeah. So let's listen to a second musical memory out of an interview that uh, I did with the head of Africana Studies here at the University of Arizona, Praise Zanenga, who I had met in the context of a performance uh, event some years before when I brought and hosted, helped to host, an event with a renowned African musician came to town, and Praise was part of putting that together as well. So I knew Praise a little bit. Um, But he shares with us uh, his own story of being in Tucson and becoming part of a musical group that then he really had an imprint on in a very powerful way. So let's listen to Praise's musical memory. My name is Praise Zanenga. I was born in Zimbabwe 
years, more in the rural areas, just outside the capital city, Harare. I work as the director of the Africana Studies Program here at the University of Arizona. Okay, there was a, a marimba group that was doing acoustic marimba, and they were playing the Zimbabwean type of marimba. And um, we had a group of people that had learned uh, this t- style of music. Our band is called The Key Ingredients of African Soul, <laughs> which means it, uh, it's, the keys are based on the marimba keys, of course, but it also has a double meaning to say key elements, meaning that we have people from all over the world who play with us. We have people from Mexico, we have people who are Native American, Africans, East Africans, West Africans, Southern Africans. We have Europeans, we also uh, have an Asian in the band, so we are all mixed. (laughs) We are the key ingredients, but focusing on African soul music. That was the goal, to bring all those people together, to unite them through music. They somehow touched the human soul in a unique way, and I think that's why I insisted on inserting that word soul in the name of our band. So it's amazing that when we play here in Tucson at places like Monterey Court or when we are downtown, people will come after the show and say, hey, this music is very healing. I feel something. I feel better. I feel good. And we come to your shows because it's not just happy, happy music, but it's music that touches the spirit, that touches the soul. Some people just stop it saying it makes me happy. So I guess it's a cure for depression. <laughs> yes. Praise Zanenga, uh, his musical memory, <clears throat> key ingredients of African soul. Susan, any any reactions to that hearing uh, Praise's story for the first time? The way that he's talking about um, choosing a name for the group and then getting the kinds of responses that he's getting, it sounds like there's the collective that's performed. There's the collective that's in, energized in a moment uh, that is ephemeral. And yet people feel has such a profound impact that it's clearly going to stay. So what intrigues me there is the ephemerality of performance versus the persistent memory of it. And without the other people who've shared that experience with him, without the connection that's happened through the music, the collective wouldn't have formed and it wouldn't have persisted. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that it's something so ephemeral and that it persists. I often find myself trying to convey this to students uh, to, in general audiences that music is, does not exist anywhere. It exists only in time and in a moment. Um, if you put it on a recording, it's already changed. It's already something else. If you put it in a piece of music, a sh- piece of paper, it has already changed. It, and as you adopt these other medium, they, they are going to affect your experience of it um, because music exists in time. What really strikes me is the way that often people talk about memory as if, oh, I remember it so clearly. I remember it so vividly. Um, I remember that performance. I remember how crazed the audience got. I remember the beauty of the sound. People will insist that they remember it perfectly. We know that memories are not preserved intact. They're never preserved intact. Um, And they get revised every time you remember every time. And so you're adding contexts of recall 
of, of memory to the memory every time you add, right? So there's the time you told your friends about it. There's the time you told your mom about it. There's the time it came up in class. There's the time three of you were sitting around at a bar 20 years later. Those are very different memories of exactly the same thing. The thing that sticks with me about Praise's story is, um, this is kind of a overly popularized word, the intentionality of it. It seems as though he wanted to create a group over time that really touched people, that that had the word soul in it, that used instruments and people from around the world to do something in particular, and that the response he's getting, the, the, the most, to me the most vivid actual memory that he shares is somebody coming up and telling him how his music and his group's music affected them. But, he, but he's also drawing on traditions and traditions of music, and he knows what connections those have fostered before. And so in a sense, there's a reenactment going on, and uh, that's more what we talk about with historical consciousness, historical imagination and recall. We talk about reenactment. But for you, for mem- uh, music and memory, I would think it's about performance. So the intentionality is to perform in a way that connects to what you know the sound is capable of, or what you know the sound has produced before and it's more than the sound I guess I my words are inadequate for it but you know what the performance of the music has created before and that's what you want to create again so there's a repetition that's based on music memory body memory lots of kinds of memories coming together in a sound that gets not exactly played the exact same way every time but references it sufficiently that it generates the same kind of feelings again. Dan, I also wondered if you had any any uh, connection to Praise's story, in part because as a pers- as a percussionist who studied drums in and percussion in Africa and and has um, worked with um, multiple African yeah. performers. I was going to say one other part of his longer interview that we don't hear in this two minute, roughly two minute version, is he reflects at some length on his upbringing in Zimbabwe and the healing quality of music there. So that seems to be very much a part of what he. Is, is all about. And the African musicians that I have worked with, <clears throat> one in particular, Bernard Woma, who has passed on, unfortunately, had that same sort of spirit about him, that this, this was about a, pri- a sense of pride in his people, his culture, his language, his music, and how that could be brought into the world in a way that really made a difference for people. And, and, and it was, there was a similar experience. If you heard Bernard Woma play, the energy and the, and the vibrancy with which he performed brought things out in people that you would have never expected before. The ability to dance, the ability to laugh and be joyous in a musical setting that seems to be uh, in common with what Praise is describing to us here. It was, it's really a, a miraculous thing to see. Brian, you want to introduce our third uh, musical memory interview cut? Professor Sarah Golgus is a professor of musicology here in the Fred Fox School of Music. She's a popular music uh, scholar and I think of her as a Beatles uh, scholar in part because she got a master's degree in Liverpool from from the the institution that now gives literally a a graduate degree in the Beatles if you you choose to uh, obtain that. Um, but she's got this wonderful story that, uh, that I'd, uh, about gathering at a John Lennon memorial that I'd like to share. So. One of those memories is I was either a freshman or a sophomore in college. And I went to, I, I got on a bus trip, um, and it was December 8th. 
and that's the anniversary of John Lennon's death. And as a huge Beatles fan and a John Lennon fan in particular, I wanted to at least once make it out to Central Park in the Strawberry Fields area of New York City. And so I got on a bus with my friend and my mom and we went and traveled to New York. And so we were in uh, the the Strawberry Fields area of Central Park outside of the Dakota um, where he was assassinated. And there were just hundreds of people. Um, There were people with acoustic guitars, tambourines. um, On the Strawberry Fields mosaic, people had placed flowers and posters and apples and like any sort of symbol that you could possibly imagine. And then people just started singing Beatles tunes and, you know, John Lennon tunes. And of course, everyone knew the words that I had never experienced that before. Because obviously, if you're in a, a concert setting, right, you know that the people know the words and they're sort of singing it back, um, you know, to the artist that's performing it. But to not have the artist be there and to have it be more of this like memorial setting, but it wasn't sad, right? It was more of like a celebration of life. All of these people, not just me, were impacted by the music, right? And um, getting to the point of, you know, singing all of these lyrics together with the people playing, you know, the few people had acoustic guitars and people participating with, like, tambourine. And it just didn't matter that we were all strangers, you know, in that moment because everyone was there for a reason. So that sounds like such an amazing uh, story because I love the idea of people just spontaneously coming together in common cause like that, that that obviously it was so meaningful to so many people. As a scholar of uh, collective memory, what strikes me immediately is this is about memorial and anniversary. Uh, Scholars in memory studies talk about sites of memory with a S-I-T-E. It's it's a place, but it doesn't have to be literally the strawberry fields. It can be anything that triggers a collective to recall uh, something that they care about. So in her case, it sounds like it was December 8th is the anniversary of a death uh, that's being commemorated. And so people, without having to you know, plan it or send an ev- invitation out on social media, they all just seem to sort of gravitate to it. And I've heard of similar things where people will visit um, cemeteries and they will visit uh, burial sites also uh, on the anniversary of a birthday or on the anniversary of a death. Um, and they will find that they're not the only ones who are there, right? Especially if it's a celebrity like Edgar Allan Poe or Emily Dickinson. I, apparently their grave sites are pilgrimage sites. So there is an element of pilgrimage here. And maybe this also ties into the previous interview, too, thinking about the significance of uh, connections to the human soul and the human spirit and thinking about life, death, mortality, health, well-being, all of those things coming together and then the common causes through music and through this particular performer. So there's the site of memory that's the anniversary. There's the site of memory that is the enactment of memorial. And they don't need a shrine and they don't need you know a sculpture of the person, but they have a common site to visit because of a song lyric. I love that. The song lyric itself creates the site of memory. And it's not the site of the performance. It's what was evoked 
in the song lyric that becomes the, the site of memory. So yeah, lots of layers of memory at work here. The, uh, you know, one of the things that um, she mentions in her longer interview is one of the many songs sung that day was Happiness is a Warm Gun. Uh, and the, you know, the, uh, the, of all the inappropriate things to sing at the yes. site where John Lennon was assassinated, um, and, and yet uh, of all the things that he might really love <laughs> that is done say, at, at the site where uh, he was assassinated. Of, of all the songs, he would, he would have been for this. Uh, yes, yeah, sure, yeah. yeah the, the irony of that. Um, it, it does bring up an, uh, an odd memory for me. I was um, fortunate enough to be living in Berlin in 1989 and 1990, and so I was at the wall the day it was demolished officially, but took a long time to actually demolish. And I remember being really surprised that the German kids who had managed to climb up on top of the wall, uh, that you know, the day before they would have gotten shot for doing that. But the ones that were up there on top of the wall were singing Beatles songs. They were singing Beatles songs on the wall in English. And I remember thinking, what has that got to do? And, and I just didn't understand or appreciate at the time, but it was hugely significant for them. uh, Speaking of memories. Wow. That's, uh, that's fascinating because the only song I can hear with the memory of that is, um, you know, Leonard Bernstein conducting the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Dun, 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 dun. You know, that's that's the only place uh, my my musical brain goes there, and I have no idea why uh, why that 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 song is connected. But anyway, there's got to be something sorry. here about spontaneous combustion. Because yeah, it happens, right? But it's happening yeah. musically. Human human spiritual combustion, so to speak. Yeah. Part of the thing that is fascinating and part of the reason why uh, I had asked Dan if we could end with with Sarah's story is because the Beatles crept into the consciousness around the world for people that had no connection to the Beatles as the cultural icons that we might have in the West and in Britain and America or in Europe might might uh, might have associate with them. Um, but the songs, you know, prolific, uh, the, the prolific output of this, this group and the, and the exposure that we've had to them has made them sink into us in ways that make them pop out on the top of the Berlin Wall or, or make them um, whistled around the world uh, and, and played by, you know, by street uh, bands and, and performers around and, the world. And I'm, I, I can only guess, <clears throat> and I've, to some degree in talking with people for the interviews for this and other folks I've spoken to, People have people have memories attached to things about the Beatles, as much as any artist. The first time you saw the White Album, the first time you saw the Sgt. Pepper's album, the first time you heard, the first time I got a job or, interview in Tucson, Arizona. What did I oh, think of? A Beatle had or, lived here. <laughs> or, or 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 the experience I had in class um, where I. Uh, assumed that the 150 students in a pop music class in front of me had all heard the Beatles, and there was the one 18-year-old that had never had that in their experience, <laughs> and I, I, I had to confront the reality that, and that this would have been, you know, a while back, uh, the moment before the Beatles are streamed as widely as they were, but also. Um, just to re- reflect on the fact that everyone's experience is not quite as the same. Yeah. Uh, that was something that o- occurred to me one of my first years of teaching here uh, 20 or 25 years or so ago where I just realized that... Um, Similar experience. I had the first, the first, and I've taught it several times, of course, in the history of rock and roll. <clears throat> and when a student came to my office hours one day, a 19-year-old young woman who came and said, tell me about this, this Led Zeppelin 
thing? <laughs> I've, I've, never, I've never listened to them. And I said, really? Somebody, somebody actually has generationally such a different experience in terms of exposure to music. Of course, what she was hearing at her 15 to 18 to 20-year-old life is as meaningful to her as Led Zeppelin and the Beatles were to me growing up in the 60s. It's, yeah. I've actually seen people walking around with Pink Floyd, uh, the wall, <laughs> emblems on their shirts, and I've asked them, that's so cool, that's Pink Floyd. And they're like, who? <laughs> no, I'm not right. kidding. They who? just like the they look really, of the yeah. shirt. They just like the design. Yeah. 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 Which is another kind of collective memory and, and way that music uh, Well, maybe it's goes a on. salutary in a sense, which is to remind us why, this is why collective memories are plural. In other words, you can't assume, even within a generation, that everybody has the same exposure right. to anything. And that within popular culture, that the same things that may be super popular at one given time have had the same effect on everybody who was alive at that time. It doesn't work that way. Well, Susan Crane, uh, professor of history at the University of Arizona, we thank you so very much for your time and expertise and reflections on uh, lifetimes of listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Archive and podcast, and uh, thank you for being with us today here. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I am excited about our upcoming episodes of Lifetimes of Listening. Our next episode will deal with musical memories relating to aging, death, loss, grief, and loneliness. And we have two more experts coming in. And I'm also excited because we'll be at South by Southwest with the University of Arizona's Wonder House, where we'll speak with Mary Frances O'Connor, an associate professor of psychology and, a, and an expert on, on grief and loss. And Corey Floyd, a professor of communication here at the U of A, who's an expert on, on loneliness and is uh, known for his book, The Loneliness Cure. So we'll be taking lifetimes of listening on the road, and, um, and I'm looking forward to, to speaking with you there. So how can you get involved in lifetimes of listening? Well, you could visit our website. It's at musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. On the website, you can listen to uh, archived editions of the interviews that we've done all about people's musical memories. You can submit a musical memory of your own with a sound file, an essay, a poem, an illustration, whatever works for you. Suggest someone you know who might like to share their musical memory with us. That's how to get involved. I'm Dan Cruz. And I'm Brian Moon. And that's it for this episode. It's Lifetimes of Listening the Arizona Musical Memory Archive and Podcast. The executive producer of Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast, is Brian Moon. The program is produced and edited by Dan Cruz. The Lifetimes of Listening website was created by Cynthia Barlow, Principal Information Technology Manager with the University of Arizona Fred Fox School of Music. Music is from zapsplat.com and from pixabay.com. Special thanks to the Fred Fox School of Music for hosting our website and UA Marketing and Communications for helping us launch this project, the archive, and this podcast series. For more information and to get involved in our research, visit musicalmemories.music.arizona.edu. This is Lifetimes of Listening, the Arizona Musical Memory Podcast. <laughs>